Welcome to the ProcureTech podcast, where we aim to excite and inspire you about how technology will shape our profession's future. I'm your host, James Meads, and I worked in corporate procurement for 16 years before starting my own business as a content creator and consultant in the procurement technology space. I'm deeply convinced that procurement must become less technocratic and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity if we're ever going to shake off our image of being a process-obsessed, box-ticking function. You definitely won't find vanilla content on here, and we're not afraid to tackle some controversial topics and tell it like it really is. So if that's your thing, now let's jump right into this week's episode. Yes, and a very warm welcome to the ProcureTech podcast. We are the official podcast of Procurement.site, where you can search, filter, and discover over 400 procurement technology solutions completely free of charge and all in one easy-to-use website, and it will take you less time than it takes to boil an egg. This week's podcast, going to be talking to a fellow nerd in the procurement tech space, and we're going to really be talking about trends and really just getting out there what we what we took from DPW that we both recently attended. So this one's really going to be more of a fireside chat type of conversation with my good friend Simon Geel from Proxima. Simon, very warm welcome. Morning, James. And thank you for outing me as a nerd. It's out there now. It's true. Hold my hands up. <laughs> but it's actually cool to be a nerd these days, isn't it? Especially in the procurement tech space. You know, we're the ones that are looking into the future rather than gazing back into the past. Well, I'm in my mid-40s now, so it's good to finally be cool. I thought I was cool for, <laughs> for most of that time, but maybe now I really am. So that gives me an enormous amount of comfort. <laughs> so just give a quick intro, Simon, to, to your background and the role that you do at Proxima, and then maybe just talk us through who Proxima are and where they're positioned within the marketplace, just to, to give listeners a feel of, of where we're approaching the conversation from. Cool. Yeah. So, well, right. We've established I'm in my I'm in my mid forties. So I've been around a little while. If we go right back to the start of that, what I really wanted to do with my life was to be an actor, a journalist, or a DJ. And so now, you could argue that I've failed with all of those. You could argue that I've I've partially succeeded with some of those in what I do today. But I I lived around uh, in sort of France and Holland a little bit. Got my first job in procurement with Philips Electronics back in the early 2000s, the very early 2000s, which will carbon date me, which was when I fell in love with procurement. It was, it was the most wonderful sort of learning ground, fantastic colleagues. And after sort of six or seven years sort of delivering procurement, I moved into BPO and consulting firms where I've spent sort of the last 15, 16 years. A lot of that time has been working between what we call operations, so delivery and sales. So helping procurement teams, procurement executives to sort of plan, figuring out, you know, what, what they can achieve and what, what's happening in the market, and then sort of plotting a path forward to them without actually getting my hands dirty in, in sort of selling or, or delivering. And so today, my job in Proxima is to face into the market. Uh, so I run our own sort of marketing teams and our, you know, what, what we think and what we say we do but also to you know, face into people like yourself, vendors, procurement teams, and really try and work out what, what's going on and, um, and where we're going and sometimes where we've been, what, you know, what's just happened. So Proxima was acquired by Bain in, uh, in 2022, and that will inevitably, I guess, make a difference in terms of your client portfolio going forward. But historically, 
from what lens are you looking at this? Who, who are typically Proxima's clients in terms of company size and industry sector? I, I suppose it's, it's, it's evolved over time. And, and I've been with the firm for about 13 years and, and it's evolved during that time. But, but Proxima itself, we're somewhere probably about 27, 28 years old. And we started out before I joined as a sort of UK-based consulting firm, you know, pretty much dealing with anyone we could in and around sort of London, which meant a lot of financial services companies, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of banks, that sort of thing. When I joined, we started to see quite a lot of rapid growth. We moved into a sort of consulting slash managed services space. And really, I guess what typified the clients that we worked with over the last sort of 13 years that I've been there is they've been sort of large enterprise. So generally sort of FTSE 100, Fortune 500 sort of size companies, usually big businesses with big problems, sometimes invested in procurement and have a capacity or capability gap, sometimes underinvested in procurement and want to you know, drive a sort of maturity journey. But often in large complex businesses, they, they tend to have large complex problems to solve, which is really where we've excelled. So I used to sort of say to people, when I was talking to them, that, that probably every person that I talk to has interacted with a Proxima client one way or another over the last year. Now, that was easy to say in the UK because we were doing a lot of public sector work and you, you have to uh, interact with them. But, but genuinely, in most industry sectors, not every industry sector, but in most industry sectors, if you took the top sort of three to five largest players by sort of revenues or whatever, we'd probably work with, with one or two of them. Got it. And if, if you're talking about then these large enterprises, FTSE 100, Fortune 500 companies, as well as, as you said, UK public sector clients, where have you typically found that they are on their digital procurement journey? And I know that's a bit of a generalization because some will be more mature than others, but do you generally find that most of them have done something and you've got a platform to move it on from or, or are some of them completely greenfield? Um. That's a really interesting question. So let's let's answer, as you say, it's a general question. So let's give a general answer first, and then let's sort of put some context around it. So, so generally speaking, if you said, what's the most common? I'd say someone's got a platform, and they feel that that platform is underperforming or not as slick as it could be, or they're not getting the coverage that they would like to have or have been told they should have, or you know, the benchmarks that they're told they should reach. That's probably the most common situation to walk into. What you then sort of see on top is that the way you, and this is where I assume you're, you're sort of talking about digital maturity, is it is then, well, what are you doing on top of that to then sort of, you know, solve particular challenges or provide a better experience in some areas or get more granular data in others? And I think that's where you get into the sort of the realms of the 2% and the 98% or the people who are, let's say, have the money or don't have the money or, or, or the different sort of approaches. So I think you know, digital maturity also is, is not necessarily a barometer of procurement maturity or other elements of procurement maturity. You know, there are some, some functions out there which are highly digitized you know, absolutely amazing how they run and how they operate, but they're not doing so well on some of the other aspects of procurement, like you know, driving strategic change out there, making markets or you know, supporting product development. And likewise, there's functions which are very good at that end, 
which perhaps haven't nailed the digital end. So I think procurement's often historically been built in the image of the business that it supports. And and you can sort of, I think you can often see that in, in, in reflections of how they've prioritized digital over the years. Now, as digital tools become more accessible and hopefully more understandable, I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a leap in digital maturity anyway, as sort of, yeah, as, as that tech becomes more accessible. That's really interesting. So you're finding then that some clients do have a pretty mature procurement team, but are maybe not very far along on the digital journey and and, and vice versa as well. I, I personally wouldn't have expected that. I, I would have thought that they would both go in tandem. So it's uh, maybe that's, can, that's insightful to hear that. Well, maybe I can just, just this is a really important point, actually. And I use, a, I use a, a super simple model. So forgive me for the simplicity of this. But if you imagine, I'm going to do it because I'm a consultant, a four box model. But imagine you've got two from left to right, on the left-hand side, you've got cost focus. On the right-hand side, you've got revenue focus. Uh, top to bottom, at the top, you've got agility, flexibility. And at the bottom, you've got sort of standardization. Historically, anything that fits in that cost and standard bucket, absolutely right for automating the heck out of it. Anything that fits in that sort of top right bucket around agility and revenue, historically hasn't been so suited to a lot of the digital tools that are out there. Now, you could argue stuff around market insights, et cetera, but, you know, vast differing levels of capability there as well. And so all of a sudden, you've got some different flavors of procurement appearing. And depending on who, who, who you report into, what your measures are, you know, your value measures are, is going to dictate where you're going to be thanked for improving the function or investing in the function. And so I, I believe that you know, certainly in large enterprises, procurement can be lots of different functions with lots of different value measures, lots of different drivers, skill sets, tech, etc. But often they only, often budget constraints have meant that you only really excel or improve in one of those areas. If that's- yeah, and I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fair observation as well, I think, because up until around about 2017, 2018, most of the procurement tech in some form or another was procure to pay or source to contract in some capacity with a, with a couple of outliers. But then, you know, since this explosion in all of these new startups that came onto the scene r- roughly five years ago, and it's continued to sort of shoot up from there, especially, you know, around about the time when the pandemic hit, then, then, then yeah, to your point that some of the stuff that historically has been trickier to digitize, there are, when you look at things like Using generative AI for for, for simple negotiations or uh, or, or category strategy to, uh, to tools and and sustainability platforms that type of thing. data aggregation it's it's mushrooming now isn't it the tech that's available in this space whereas you know when you go back five years it just wasn't there so I mean I think it's even if the companies would have wanted to digitize and were really forward thinking that were that were that way inclined that perhaps wasn't the tech out there or or, or not you know, in the magnitude of number of solutions that, that that could that could serve the needs. So yeah, I think that probably is a fair comment. Yeah. So so I mean we've we've both just got back from DPW at the time of recording this. Obviously it's going out a little bit later in terms of when it's published. But and we before we hit record, we were both saying that it's an amazing conference. It's really inspirational. There's some there's some great tech on display out there and some some great content in terms of a lot of the presenters 
and the speakers not being, you know, traditional procurement people. But we were both sort of nodding and said, well, that kind of represents the tip of the iceberg and the the 2% or maybe the 5%, if I'm being generous, of of our industry who sort of get it and and realize that there's a necessity and an absolute imperative to to be able to drive change. But the reality on the ground when when your colleagues from Proxima go into go into, let's say, a bank or a financial services or an insurance company in in the city of London to deliver a consulting project, the reality on the ground is vastly different, isn't it? So I mean, from what you see and hear out there from from your colleagues, colleagues who are delivering these projects, what would you say is the most pressing challenge? I mean, there are three that I got in mind, but if you think it's something different, please elaborate. But I've got, is it shortage of talent with the right skills or mindset within the procurement team? Is it just a lack of budget for tech investments to take them beyond, you know, what you what you were saying, there's there is often, you know, some legacy tech platforms in there, you know, the Arebas and the Coopers of the world, I, I guess we're referring to? Or is it just a, a lack of dynamism or, or willingness to take risk among the current crop of CPOs? Is it one of those? Or, or do you think it's something completely different? Well, oh, yeah. Or oh, here we go. It, it could be a combination of all of those. Do you know, so here's one. So about four years ago, we did a piece of content. It was a typical piece of content. You know, you get all this content coming out on LinkedIn and it's sponsored by someone and written by someone and, and blah, blah, blah. But we wanted to do it on digital. And in particular, we wanted to do, we wanted to sort of get in early on the best of breed movement and try and gauge or get a temperature check as to where people's heads were on best of breed versus suites and et cetera, et cetera. And where was this thing going? And we asked this one question, or maybe two questions actually, which I, 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 I always took away with me. And, and it was about, you know, how do you think your, your, it was something about the perception of a transformation and around about a third or 35% of, of the respondents were telling us that they thought that their digital program would be regarded as a failure by the customers that they serve before they'd even started, which I wish I thought was like, I mean, it, it blew my mind. And then a, f- a follow-up question that we asked was around, it was something around, you know, I can't remember the, 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 the precise question, but, but it, again, it was a similar sort of percentage amount of people said that where, the, where it would fail first or where it would fail would be their ability to sell the case into their executive to get the money. Now, we can call that lack of funds or we can call that lack of vision because actually an executive is sat there on a daily basis. I don't know how many of them are on a daily basis, but let's assume every day they get 10 business cases. Yours might be the ninth best on that day, but they're only going to do one out of the 10. So it doesn't mean that it's you know, not a good idea to go and do this. It just means, is it a good idea to do it now? And so I personally, in, in the space that I operate in, Think of, you know, we, we see that stat around 60, 70% of digital transformations fail. How many historically haven't even started because we couldn't tell the story to release the investment to get moving on something? And I, I, I'm not sure that looking around the sort of, you know, the space today where, where we're being influenced, whether that's at events or online or whatever, or, you know, I'm not sure it's getting any easier because there's a huge amount of noise. And what noise can lead to is, is procrastination. You know, there's lots of good ideas, but there's lots of solutions. 
So I'm not sure it's getting easier. So perhaps, you know, one of the things that people can think about is what's their, what's their method for, you know, what's their uh, method they're going to come up with for figuring out how to have one eye on the long-term, you know, that long-term vision, and that one eye on the short-term, short-term effectiveness of going out and finding solutions to problems that the people who hold the purse things think are worth solving. Yeah, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? Because say, there's obviously money there because sales seem to get the money to to implement and marketing seems to get the money to implement software. Is it, is, is it just that CPOs are bad marketers or is it perhaps that just CEO, CEOs, maybe from the top down, just don't see the value in procurement in many organizations? Probably a combination of all of that. I definitely think that possibly also the way that procurement has worked. I mean, having worked next to sales teams for a long time, it's inconceivable that a professional sales team, for instance, doesn't use a CRM and doesn't use that CRM to post all of their customer data, track their interactions, figure out their campaigns and, and all of that because it's so much easier and more effective than, than doing it in spreadsheets. And often you're working in teams of teams of people who you know, might cross over and bump into each other and all that sort of thing. I'm not sure that procurement's necessarily seen the world through the same lens over the last X number of decades. But I also think that you know, we, we knock ERPs a lot and STPs a lot, and I'm, I'm up there with the best of them knocking them from, from time to time because you know, it's, it's important to, to push things on. But they were the best that we could do for a very long period of time. And they are a significant investment, not just financial, but a change investment. They're often underperforming and, and not delivering the results that were promised. And so as, a, as someone holding the purse strings, you're probably sat there thinking, well, do I plow more money into this and fix it when I'm not really sure I'm going to get the benefits? Or you know, do I plow it into other things that I'm interested in? Don't know. Discuss. Yeah, and it's I don't have the answer to that, but I think it does raise a great question that if you've invested into some legacy tech that is no longer serving you, at what point do you then have the conversation with the CFO and say, look, this is sunk cost. You know, we need to, it's it's a hindrance now, you know, even if it has cost us a couple, a couple of millions to go out and buy and implement this technology, it's no longer serving our needs and the time and the times have moved on. It's a difficult conversation, but I think the, the bravest CPOs out there are going to have to have that conversation if they're really going to have a cutting-edge tech stack going into the future. I think that's interesting. I think it comes back to, or partially comes back to the, the thing we were discussing just now about telling the story and setting the expectations and being realistic. And that's probably one of the hardest things at the moment when we're sort of being told that all systems can do all things. Although I do think that perhaps that perhaps there's less of that now than there, than there was a couple couple of years ago. Um, but, but looking at some of the people who've built really strong digital functions, you know, it's, it's not always because they have a big, big budget. I can think of one or two particular who have had a big budget and they've gone out and innovated and done lots of stuff and really sort of pushed themselves and, and probably the industry forward. But I can think of other ones who've, who've innovated very, very deliberately using small firms to come and solve, you know, solve problems and capitalize on opportunities that they see in a sort of piece-by-piece piece basis. And probably what unites them, which is where I might come back to your three things now and, and contradict myself, probably what unites them is a vision of how procurement can 
improve, sorry, digital can improve the way that procurement works. A curiosity that admits that they don't quite know some of the ways that digital can improve procurement, but it's worth sort of being curious and, and finding out. And then the sort of talent to wrap that up as a sort of a, if you like, a little program, a bunch of people who are digitally curious, but ultimately trying to improve a procurement function. So perhaps budget isn't always a barrier. Well, at least not budgets go and buy tools, but you know, maybe the focus and curiosity of the team and the digital vision is. Yeah, and especially now moving into the opportunity to be able to test and tinker a little bit with low-code and no-code tools just to get proof of concept. I think that okay, cybersecurity concerns to one side. I think it's now pretty simple to go out and build a, a relatively rudimentary vendor management or contract management tool or, or, or sort of purchase order to invoice automation platform in, in, something, in something like well, Airtable is the one I'm most familiar with because I've built the back end of my business on it. But there are plenty of others out there that, can, that, that, can do, that, that have similar functionality. So I think that could now be the gatekeeper, couldn't it, in terms of unlocking the keys just to get a basic proof of concept to, to show what can be done without having to invest. Well, and as well now, whereas, whereas before to implement one of these big legacy suites, you would have needed millions of dollars in consultancy to to bring in a team to do the IT implementation, whereas a lot of these best of breed or point-based solutions now, you know, I had Kartik on a few weeks ago and we were talking about, okay, plug and play probably is a bit of a fallacy, but certainly you can implement them in days and weeks rather than years nowadays. Yeah, and I, I think um, probably a couple of... Um observations there. I think I think the first thing you mentioned about low no code is really is is really interesting. And if you if if you if you take a step back and say, well, let's look at the democratization of IT, for instance, as a as a guideline for what procurement can achieve and how in in the IT space a lot of us are you know, using self-service tools, we're very comfortable with them. We'd rather do that than talk to someone in IT or, or do it do it another way. And it's it's very obvious how we do it. I a couple of years ago, I started reading some articles on itization to try and inspire me to think about how that could work in procurement. And so I, I completely buy into that. And I think particularly some of the, um, you know, some of the stuff around helping users to scope or, or define requirements in a way which is better than they could do themselves and more convenient is a really interesting space. But I also think that one of the big challenges for a lot of legacy providers and I, and I mean that as, as the enterprise, but also the mid-tier, is going to be how they manage the perception gap between what someone now thinks they can do themselves and the value that this tool or, or, or consultancy firm, indeed, provides. Because I think such is, such is the perceived advances in AI now, um, and in particular generative AI. If you can use generative AI to, let's say, find a vendor or build a strategy or write you an RFP. That may not be as good as using a, another provider or consultancy, but the perception gap is often different to the reality gap. So I think there's a really interesting thing to watch over the coming months and years around you know, how vendors reposition and differentiate themselves around what someone can do themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point in terms of self-service tools and just the just the democratization of things like ChatGPT and how that can do a, a lot of the grunt work that takes so much of procurement's time these days. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. 
What are your thoughts on the latest crop of startups? Are, are there any are there any out there that you're particularly impressed by, be it a particular company or or a specific problem that that some of these startups solve? Is is there anyone out there that you think is is a particular game changer in terms of what they do? I I, I love talking about this because, as as you know, I've run two captive startups and failed both times. And uh, by a captive startup, I mean it was it was funded within Proxima. And I think the reasons that we failed were probably around, as much as anything, around timing. So we were on to SRM, for instance, and built an SRM platform five years ago when no one was buying SRM. And we did a, an insights platform a couple of years ago when, you know, actually we figured out that, that people weren't that interested in, in getting their insights. But, but I think both of those sort of now sailing. So I think you know, the, the, the timing is good there. Not saying we would have succeeded with, with me at the helm. That would be hugely arrogant to say. But I, what it taught me is that I admire all of these startups from the first perspective because it takes a huge amount of courage to run one of these businesses, to start something up, to chase a dream, to build something, to hire people, to put yourself on the line when you've also got to manage life and other things around it. And I, I think it's enormously difficult. And so I take my hat off to all of them, first of all, because it's, you know, I remember huge numbers of sleepless nights and having to make decisions which I hated, you know, alongside some of the, the more exciting stuff. And they go through that on a daily basis. But in terms of what are some of the spaces I'm really interested in, I'm really interested in climate action, for instance, climate action platforms, risk tech, because I think they solve genuine business issues, which we're facing into now and over the next decade. I'm also really interested in these sort of democratization engines. So I mentioned like the, you know, scoping, statement of work stuff, intake, requirements, definitions, all that sort of stuff, which I think solves big procurement issues, quality issues, and value issues, which is using new tech to in new ways, rather than just finding an old process and automating it, which is, you know, which was the best we could do for perhaps the last decade. How do you think that will change the modus operandi of consulting firms? Because a lot of these new solutions that are coming in that you just described are kind of being able to automate or simplify a lot of what traditional consulting projects would have been 10 years ago, right? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think one, of the, one of the byproducts of, and we'll, we'll get a bit theoretical now, but, but let's, let's just bundle all this together and call it Industry 4.0. As in, you know, we're, if you, if you listen to lots of commentators, we're, we're going through this sort of new industrial revolution based around Industry 4.0 style tech. One of the easiest ways to, and it, well, it can be hard to sort of figure out, well, what does, what does that mean? How big is the shift going to be? But one of the easiest ways is to look back at other industrial revolutions, so one, two, and three, and say, well, how big was the shift? You know, one, for instance, steam power, you know, massively enabled us to scale up production, send trains up and down the country with building materials, all these sorts of things. Number two, electrification, electrification of production lines, motor cars, commercial aviation, and then number three, the internet. So all big, huge changes into how we lived, how we worked, and we're going through that again now. We might not see it all around us, we might not recognize it, but the scale of the change is going to be big. And it's going to be big whether you're in consulting, whether you're in manufacturing, professional services, whatever you do, our world is transforming. And it's not just that 5 10% that we transform every year and have to stay ahead of the game. It might be 
20, 30, 40%. And I think the challenge for consulting in particular is probably twofold. I think it's number one, consulting firms are not always at the bleeding edge, but they're often trying to help the, the next set of adopters through those challenges. So adopt utility models and you know, change themselves. So there's a, there's a challenge there, you know, stay ahead of the game, have the right partnerships and you know, be the people who can help the masses through the change. I think one of the other challenges for consultancies is clearer positioning. And I suppose this applies more to consultancies like Proxima, who actually are delivery specialists. You know, it is all about clear positioning about you're the people to go and help people deliver the change. That's what we do. So stay ahead of what the change is and help people deliver it. So I, I think going through a period of massive uh, change and in how we live and how we work, it's a huge opportunity for consultancies because throughout history, things have evolved and you just need to stay ahead. So it's, it's really around just staying ahead of where, they, where, where the delivery needs to come from and, and making sure that you're on top of the latest trends rather than, ra- rather than doing a lot of the opportunity assessments and all of the sort of more upstream areas. Well, I think that a, a diagnostic or an opportunity assessment is a is a tool to help a client or help an organization to frame where it is versus where it wants to go and the benefits of doing so. And I think that will always be relevant. But the way in which you deliver those assessments, again, can be disrupted. Um, A consulting firm, a services firm, a tech firm, all exist to solve a problem. And you just need to make sure that the problems that you solve are numerous enough for you to build and maintain a business around it. And I think, um, you know, the problems that we solve are going to evolve. So with that, we, we have to evolve too. Yeah, and having the data at your fingertips to be able to solve them is probably going to be a lot faster process now with all of these correct. tools than it has historically too, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, correct. Last question I wanted to ask you, Simon, just before we wrap this up would be, share your thoughts on with me on what you think of ERP and where this fits into the future. If we look 10 years into the future, do you, do you see procurement being done pretty much completely outside of our ERP, you know, with perhaps maybe a, a link in to make a payment into, into, into the suppliers? But apart from that, do you see it being run by this plethora of tools that are out there in whichever sort of permutation of, of tech stack people put together? Yeah, one of my th- favorite things to do is, um, is predict the future because you, you have the, um, the ability to be wrong. And by and large, no one remembers because no one goes back to the past to, to, to try and remember what you said. And I think I, I, I do a few sessions where, where I talk about things like this, but my vision for the future, and I'm not going to knock ERP because I think it was the, the best that we could do and it was better than what came before, but we are ready for a shift. And I, I, I believe, and this is going to be the most consulting thing that I say today, that the, the words that are, are going to sort of dominate will be transparent, interconnected, value ecosystem. Now, again, that's a, a word, a phrase that doesn't really roll off the tongue, but each word's deliberately chosen before we change it into something that your mother-in-law can understand. But transparent because we're going to want to see through businesses. I think that's where a lot of the value comes from and a lot of the agility combined with risk management and ESG and all of the data that we're going to want to see. I think interconnected because that transparency only comes from connecting things up. And Industry 4.0 is all about connectivity and transparency. I think value because we're going to shift from a supply chain focus to a value chain focus. 
that desire to be closer to customers, the impact that we're seeing from regulators and geopolitical unrest means that we have to have a broader value chain view because it can quickly distort our business. An ecosystem, everything's going to be sold in ecosystems. So I think the next generation of ERP sees us move into this space where, you know, greater transparency, more connectivity between value chain players and actually partnerships and collaborations to solve stuff. And then we're going to bolt on little apps that help us do stuff. And they're going to be hyper-connected because the new world is not about connectivity of systems, it's about connectivity of data. But to make all that achievable, we have to have a UX or you know an experience layer, let's say, that people can go into and feel comfortable in and, and feel like it wraps around them, like some of the tech that we have at home, and a data layer underneath that, or somewhere in the middle, perhaps, that makes sense of all the data coming in and going out. So I think we're in for a big upgrade. I think it's going to enable us to, to broaden the way that we look at the world and use more specialist tools. And I think, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the pioneers to, you know, realize that. I think we're already seeing some of the big tech firms try to provide the backbone of that. But I, I'm looking forward to seeing it realized. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if the ER operators are able to sort of turn the juggernaut or turn the oil tanker around in terms of some of the innovation that they have as well, because they they could realistically be part of it, but are they able to change fast enough and compete with some of these more nimble startups? I guess nobody knows, but it's always good to gaze into the future and try and predict, isn't it? Always fun. Last question, Simon. If anyone would like to reach out to you or connect, where's the best place that we should send them? Well, I think probably LinkedIn. It's uh, Simon Geel. That's uh, G-E-A-L-E. I work for a company called Proxima Group, mid-40s, grey hair, you'll recognize the picture. Do get in touch because I love to <laughs> meet people and chat to people. And, you know, that's one of, the, one of the benefits of being in this industry, right? So it's a great time to chat and learn from each other. Even if it's just to talk football. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. And uh, yeah, look forward to hopefully seeing you again at DPW next year. Yeah, thanks, James. Great to see you. So that was a bit of a fireside chat about the future of procurement tech and digital transformation in general. Hope it was insightful and brought up some discussion points for you and your organization too. Just a quick one before we sign off. If you want to get our free 20-minute intro course into Digital Procurement 101, just head over to store.site and you can get that completely free of charge. You just need an email address to register. We'll be back same time next week. Until then, thank you very much for listening to the show. See you next week and bye for now. 